my parents were always like, you know, if you were in Iran, you wouldn't be able to do X, Y, or, you know, if you were in Iran, you wouldn't be able to go to do a mime show because I did mime. Um, and well, That's you, one of the good things about Iran. Miming is totally banned. It is like it's banned. That's um, Nagin Farsad and Dean Obidala. The comedians were on stage this month for a discussion called How to Make White People Laugh, Joking Our Way to a More Tolerant Future. The event was held by the Aspen Institute's Arts Program. This is Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. We bring you compelling talks from the Aspen Institute. The Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a nonpartisan venue for dealing with critical issues. Nagin Farsad calls herself a social justice comedian. She thinks comedy can influence our thinking and break through barriers of understanding. Once you get to the million mark of chuckles, that amounts to some kind of cultural shift, and that matters, you know? But, ha- but, but removing the opportunity to have any chuckles would, not, you know, you don't get anything done. She works to prove that humor, just like activism, can effectively challenge deep-seated and sclerotic prejudices about race and religion. In her recent book, How to Make White People Laugh, she addresses the mistreatment and misperceptions of Muslims in the U.S. after 9-11. She's joined by Dean Obidala, radio host and Farsad's co-director of the documentary The Muslims Are Coming. Also on stage is Imam Dai Abdullah. He's the president and founder of the Mecca Institute, a Muslim think tank and online school. He's one of the world's only openly gay imams and regularly performs same-sex, opposite-sex, and interfaith marriages. For the next hour, the three will bring levity to serious, sometimes grim topics in American cultural and political life. Farsad begins with an explanation of her book. One of the things I think um, in in making white people laugh, what are the reasons I called it that? Because I want it, my goal is to like lubricate white people because they control a lot of stuff. Um, like an, uh, space and uh, the economy, um, HBO's Game of Thrones, um, Tetherball, and so I think when you're when you're in charge of that breadth of stuff, uh, it's important to uh, to keep those people kind of well lubed and um, laughing. And my feeling is that if we can get more white people laughing, they might start fewer wars. So that's like one of my well, like side goals with the book. So your your book is an opiate for white people to calm, calm them, them, chill calm them, them down, and chill not them, out. them up. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like I think we need some sort of we need like a national kickboxing class or something <laughs> to get rid of the rage um, and you know and then follow that up with some comedy I think that'd be a good you know you get out the aggression and then you sit and you have a nice laugh it makes you feel open um, and, and I, the brand of stuff that I do I like to call it social justice comedy um, and there are a few basic rules for social justice comedy one uh, it's not partisan right so this isn't about politics this is about justice and nobody is against justice Right. Um, two uh, it's inviting and warm, right? It makes you feel like you're sitting inside of a burrito, um, which is always really nice. Uh, and then um, three, it's it's funny but sneaky. Like you could be hearing a, a, like a, a treatise on income inequality, but encased in a really sophisticated poop joke. And so you'll, you, and that's when, that's kind of like the peak of, of social justice comedy is when you can, can achieve those three things. Look, just for the, pe- the white people here, by 2040, they're going to be a minority. Do you have any pep talk for them? <laughs> 
and you tell them like, hey, it's gonna be okay, white people. I'll have a few sequels out by then. Anything? Um, you know, you can do a solo show, talk about your experience, write some poetry. Um, all people the might stuff like you. that the brown oh. people do now, just to make it. I, I, I liked, you know, there's a, a comedian that had a joke, and I can't remember her name, but it was a New York-based comic who would say, uh, like, all I'm trying to do is get through the day without writing another poem. Um, and <laughs> I feel like that's what it's like being a, a, a minority, right? Uh, and so white people, like, there's just, like, a lot of beautiful sonnets in your future. <laughs> you got at least you might get your own month to celebrate your heritage. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> or at least a week, like Whitey Week. This is my dream. All right, let's talk about So social justice comedian in a way sounds like a very fun superhero. Like you're really taking on No, cuz you really are. You're taking on very difficult topics. I've known Nagin for years through a comedy, really dealing with difficult issues, but through comedy. Do you think like with your book you can potentially reach people who would never read an academic book on the same topic? Yeah, I mean, that's the idea, because comedy is just more fun, you know what I mean? On a scale of, like, one to, you know, on a scale of whatever, on a scale of brochure to comedy, like, the average person prefers comedy, right? Uh, by, by a round of applause, who, who in here prefers brochures? Okay, who Very in here prefers comedy? Okay. Ah. So, a few people so that's, vote. that's the thing. And I'll, I'll give you a little, an, a little example. We can kind of make this more, um, bring in the current mm -hmm. election cycle, which is so fun. Um, it's scary. And uh, <laughs> what I did was, so, you know, I'd like to kind of take policies to their logical extreme um, and, and, really, and really kind of see what they mean. And one of those was that we should ban Muslims um, and, or put them on a Muslim register from Donald Trump and uh, whatever needless to say okay anything hideous that happened it was Donald Trump or like it was Ted Cruz okay so what I did was I went into the streets of New York and um, and I and I conducted what I called the bacon test because um, you know if you want to ban Muslims you got to know who the Muslims be so uh, I went on the streets of New York conducted a bacon test and I asked people like are you Muslim and they would be like you know no and I'd be like prove it and they'd have to eat from a pile of cold bacon um, and then if they did didn't eat the bacon, I'd be like, okay, well, you're clearly a Muslim and you have to sign the Muslim registry, which looked like a bridal registry. It had like ornate writing and flowers on it. Um, and, uh, you know, and sometimes vegans would be like, well, I'm like vegan, you know, but I, I'm not, so I'm not going to eat the bacon, you know, but I'm not Muslim. And I'd be like, you're Muslim to me, sign the registry, you know? So, so, um, and so the idea, and this is a video I did with MoveOn.org and Upworthy. You could see it online um, for free. You know, and the point is to sort of show, like, okay, like to take these actual policies to their logical extreme, and what they mean is a religious test. And you know, we first of all, there's just not enough money in the budget for the bacon required to have that kind of religious test. And then secondly, it's unconstitutional, just side note. Um, and so, uh, you know, so those are the kinds of things that I think it's, it's more fun to hear that lesson, sure. um, you know, in, in, a, in a funny video like that. Plus, turkey bacon's better for you. Just to put that out there, folks. Mm -hmm. Just trying to help. So let's talk, and then we're going to bring in Imam Adela right after this. In this, your book, I should call you Noodle, apparently. Because when you were a kid in school, which is part of the challenge of growing up with a unique name like Nagin, in school your teacher called you not Nagin but something else. And yeah. Can you explain that no, a little? No, well, I mean, because, and this is part, because growing up I longed to be Mexican. And because I grew up in Southern California, 
And um, in in forty percent of my high school was Mexican or whatever, and so and and they had icons like Cesar Chavez, and they had ranchero music, and they had every restaurant in this town, and it was just like they had a really recognizable culture, and they were brown, right? And so I just longed to be like Mexican, yeah. So there, okay, you're one of those people, okay? And uh, and so I longed to be Mexican, and then in school, and and the naming is really where things got to me because you know. All of the white teachers could pronounce the names of the Mexican kids, you know, like they'd roll there, they'd be like, Aurelia here, like Rodrigo here, you know, and they knew all of their names. And I was just like, oh, and they would be like, uh, Megan, no, Nagin, Magreem, no, Nagin. And then one time, this, this teacher I had, literally said noodle she just said noodle farsad like that was except and i was like what and then she laughed and laughed she thought it was so hilarious that she said noodle and i was just like that's not even the right stereotype we're a rice-based people but anyway um and um it was so true and so it just like reinforced my desire to be Mexican because I was like, oh, why can't I be like Consuela or you know what I mean? Like something that the teacher could pronounce. Uh, and then I that I kept that kind of, I, so I grew up wanting to be Mexican and then in college um, there were no Mexicans because I went to school in upstate New York. What up? White upstate, uh, yeah, um, and uh, and so there were no Mexicans there, and I was just sort of like, oh, like, and for a second I thought I'm gonna try and be white, like, right. like what, uh, maybe I could pass, um, and it just there's just it turns out there was just far too much Dave Matthews involved in like being um, white, and I couldn't, it, I could, and there was like monogrammed backpacks and stuff like that, I couldn't do it, so. Um, so, and also like whiteness is not, you don't get to opt in. That's, I learned that as well. You are, it's rewarded. So, um, I, uh, I, and that's when my like black formation really began because they were the recognizable minority group on campus. And, you know, again, like I, it's not like I ever was confused that I was black or Mexican, but I, you know, it's just like, I was like, well, they're not my people, but close enough. And I think that's what a lot of hyphenated <laughs> Americans do. They go, eh, that'll do, you know? And so, um, and so you, and so I started like, you know, watching the Canada black cinema and getting really, you know, and protesting on, on, um, black issues on campus, wielding protest signs and just, and then I ended up getting, um, you know, like most Iranian American Muslims, I ended up getting a master's degree in African American studies. Um, and, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I and people would just be like, "What are you doing?" You know, like because I was also um, very shockingly the only non-black person um, in the program, um, and uh, and this is at uh, Columbia Ivy League drop. Nice, um, I like that. Mm. And. Uh, <laughs> And I, and so I, uh, and, and I would just be like, you know, they were like, don't you have like your own people? And I'd be like, what are you talking about? Like, I will fight for African American rights whenever and wherever. Like I have the DVD box set of a different world in my backpack. Like I'm about to change my name to Tyler Perry presents Nagin Farsad. And, um, I was really committed and I am really committed, um, still. And but I'm all, and I'm also committed to Latino issues and I'm also committed to just any kind of immigrant issue. But, but they weren't I, challenging enough for you, so now you embrace the whole Muslim so thing. So then I like, had to go full Muz. Oh, my yeah. God. <laughs> so like, oh, Latinos and black, that's not hard enough. Let me add the Muslim thing. So let me bring in Imam Abdullah and have you both in this part here. What do you think, I'll ask you Nagin first, and then we'll go to Imam Abdullah. What do you think the biggest misconception is about Muslims now in America? I mean, because the only thing we really see 
you know, whenever we see Muslims on television, it's like they're doing, you know, a mass prayer, and the prayer looks like a CrossFit workout, right? Like, it looks really intense. Or we see, like, dusty dudes in the desert wielding AK-47s, or we see, like, the shrouded lady wearing the black burqa, and you don't, you know, and she's floating. Um, And (laughs) you, so you don't really see... Any, any competing imagery, which is something that we tried to do with the Muslims are coming, which is to say, let's create a new stereotype. Muslims aren't terrorists. They're hilarious. Stupid, stupid. Um, but... <laughs> It didn't catch on the way we it didn't, catch, it didn't catch on when I yeah, um, <laughs> but but you know that I like we if you 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 show anything other than Muslims are violent, um, I, I think you're doing something you know good for the community. And Imam Abdullah, what do you think? Because you're dealing out there with people in our community and outside. The biggest misconception about Muslims now that you have to fight against. Um, I think in terms of how people perceive it, it's the continuation of the movie process in the 70s of the, of course, it was always the Arab, the Saudi Arab, who was always the lascivious right. guy who was doing all these different things, or the, the anti-Schwarzenegger person that he was going to blow up and kill and all of that. But when they started, the, when whites started becoming converting more so to becoming Muslim, then it sort of flipped again. So now you have this blonde, blue-eyed guy who's now the, the epitome of being the great um, Muslim. So it always it crossed that whole spectrum, but yet um, too often they forget about the people who have been Muslim for decades and decades here in America, uh, black and, and Latino, mm-hmm. and other um, Muslims who have come, or Muslims and Arabs who have come here over the decades. So what it's done is that now they they have to people to make white people laugh again is that it really is a potpourri of people who identify as being Muslim. But the thing is that the problem is that they think of this monolithic Islam. There's only one particular time when I educate people is that there are a system of Islams with an S on it that have come and have fallen out throughout history. And so when they look at it, they really have to look at the big picture or under the tent type of thing rather than just thinking it's only one group of people who are really identifying and leading the group. And, and one more thing for you, Mom. So I think you on my radio show. You talked about you worked in the civil rights struggle. You worked in the LGBT struggle. Are there lessons from that? that we can use people who are Muslim and also are our allies in fighting against anti-Muslim bigotry? Yes, I think so. One is that there has to be a sense of diversity and connectivity. There's, rather than uniformity, look for unity in different aspects. So people who are comedians should be honored. People who are not politicians, you know, school teachers are still important. Sure. The garbage guy is still important. <laughs> you know, those type of people, but they, we cover so many spectrums. And I think what has happened uh, overall from the academic perspective is that Edward Said you know, was the, the person that she went to before his death over a decade ago. But then when you start looking at newer people, meaning the ones who are coming up now, they're much more activists. And I think now the, the spectrum is, that, well, how do we identify these people? Because they don't dress like the other folks. They don't you know, make identifiable things. But the thing is to see how open-minded that they are, that they're part of our mixing pot. Okay, and Nagin, you know, Imam Abdullah is the only openly gay imam. You have a whole chapter in your book entitled, "There, Iranians have no gaydar. Why, why do Iranians have no gaydar? <laughs> like, what, is it jammed by the Ayatollahs? Like, what has happened? <laughs> like, why is there no... Um, no, I mean, this is like, so, because growing up in Palm Springs, or Palm Springs is one of, is, is this weird desert town, um, 
And it's one of the top five retirement communities in California. It's also like one of the top five gay cities. And so it's the kind of place where you'll see like people dancing to Lady Gaga while adjusting their catheters. Like it's that kind of town. <laughs> and, um, and so, <laughs> so st- everything I say is really dumb. Okay. Um, and, uh, and so growing up, like I grew up in a, in a really hardcore like senior citizen neighborhood uh just i was the only kid and then um and then surrounding my neighborhood of senior citizens was more senior citizens so we just had (laughs) a lot of and uh and and i would just be playing on the streets as a kid and then there would be like really like slow moving cadillacs coming down the street like at very threatening minimum speeds and um uh and so that's and 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 but the other so the other funny thing about it was that there were a lot of gay um, senior citizens uh, as well. So, and I think mostly, yeah, mostly, mostly senior citizens. I can't recall ever seeing like a hot young uh, gay man. Um, but um, and so we, a lot of our neighbors were gay, and my parents would just refer to them as roommates. Uh, they were, they would be lifelong partners, and and they always just said, "Oh, they are a nice roommate," you know. And I think that they, you know, they did that, A, because maybe they didn't know, but maybe they didn't want to be like, oh, they're gay, and then that's, this is what gay means. Like, they don't want to explain it to me. And then also, I think calling them roommates made it easier for them to be, you know, we had really great relationships with our neighbors, um, and to be friendly with them and not to have to invoke any kind of, like, peer-pressured, um, homophobia, which I think is, you know, something people, so a lot of people, like, you know, I think at that time too, like a lot of people like aren't really homophobic, but they get this peer pressure to be homophobic. And so calling them roommates sort of like, did, you know, did away with that. But also um, just on a more formal institutional level, our former president, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, he said, uh, you know, Iran does not have gay people. I don't know who told you that. So he just literally thought there were no gay people in Iran. Uh, he really had no gaydar. Do you think he no really gaydar. didn't think so? Do you think he really... I mean... He had no gaydar, or do you think it was like he was jamming? Like, he didn't want to... To him, it was some kind of weakness of their country? To, like, admit that they right. had... I mean, yeah, I, probably. Like, right. in the... Yeah. But, you know, when you say something yourself for so long, you really believe it, you know? Um, I think he's he had gotten to that point. Where he convinced himself that we really don't have gay people here. He's probably totally gay himself. (laughs) He's the gay. He might move to Palm Springs. Well, I can definitely add to that. I've done some international human rights work and have actually worked with several. So is Ahmadinejad gay? Is that what you're saying? No. I'm just saying that. I bet you're going to confirm it. I've met him and he's clearly gay. You know, they do exist. Okay. um, Although they may not walk, do do parades, but they do. (laughs) (laughs) But they do exist, and I've helped several of them particularly in Norway and in a couple other places in Belgium where they have gone to seek asylum and refugee status. And so they do exist uh, from a variety from transgender to, you know, your average lesbian gay person. And so they do exist. People need to recognize that they're everywhere. Everybody's everywhere. Right. And that the important thing is that these are they're the same as everybody else. Like you said, some of the best roommates that you could ever have. Right? <laughs> 
also really weird about Iran, though, is that you are not allowed to be gay, but you are allowed to have gender reassignment surgery. So, like, that's one of their weird wow. compartmentalizations, um, and they and it's paid for by the government. The government yeah. um, so that's one of those weird things. But one of the things that happens in terms of that is that the society, though, they they knew the person. Um, as being whatever gender they were in the binary. And then what a lot of them do is they have to relocate to another part of the country so no one knows them. And if someone comes there and recognizes them, then it's another move. Yeah. So it's this social stigma, too, that's, that still follows them, even though they've been able to make the medical change. And there was something that I, 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 earlier we talked about misconception. There was one that I wanted to bring up, is that I'm not sure how many people who are Muslim. I'm not going to ask your religious test here, so you can travel freely. I'm not going to ask... Uh, <laughs> But I don't think most Americans are aware that the biggest component of the Muslim community in America is African-American. Did anybody see Roots the other day, the new Roots that's been airing? And it begins with Kunta Kinte is Muslim, the baby. And that's really based on the book, Alex Haley. Mm -hmm. And that 15 to 20% of the original slaves in America were Muslim. So African-Americans predated any immigrant Muslims in this country. Yet their, their preconception is, this misconception is that we're somehow a new immigrant population that's why they want to ban, you know, Sharia law. They want to ban Sharia law, which it's coming, folks. Sorry, uh, no, it's not coming. <laughs> it's uh, they call it foreign law now. So anything Islamic is foreign because to these guys on the right, Jesus was born in Iowa and like wrapped in an American flag <laughs> and driven home in a pickup truck while Toby Keith played. But what do you say to people? Do you think it helps in our struggle, though, Imam Abdullah, to make the point that African Americans are the biggest component? They've been here of our community now, and they've been here for generations and generations predating the formation of the United States of America. Do you think that'll help, or is this just a game? It's just words, and the haters, that won't change then. Well, I, to know the history is very important. Because sure. once you know your history, you understand who you are. So for many African Americans and some cross-mixtures with the Native groups as well, it's important to know their history. But when it comes down to the modern thing, it's just something that's it's a footnote at the bottom of the and all those foreign guys, and then we do have a few that came here before we even started kind of thing. Uh, really, the, one of the issues I think is, in my youth, one of my elder brothers belonged to NOI, Nation of Islam, yeah. at the time back in the early 60s. And so at that time, it was the black radicals. You know, the black Muslims were this, this group, yet they were the ones who were building businesses. They were the ones who were um, helping maintain um, a community with a, a level of standards that were important. And so I think that one of the things, once you start, as I said again, once you know the history, you start to have some sense of pride in that what your background is. But that pride doesn't have to go in front of you pushing other people out of the way. But it's just something that you know when people make comments, you can correct them, you know, let them know this history, and move forward. Right, and the flip side is, Nagin, your parents were immigrants. You were born here, though, right, Nagin? Yeah, you're, yeah. So you're here legally. And... Uh, <laughs> Donald Trump made me ask that. It was a question yeah. here. The Trump. No, but in your book, you have a chapter about the children of refugees are more patriotic, yeah. which is very interesting because I, I, I can't quantify it, but I know what you're saying. And as a child of an immigrant myself, my dad's Palestinian, my mom's Italian, that I know what you're saying. Like, there's a sense of pride. What did you mean by that in your, in your chapter? Well, I mean, so the dorky story example of this is that I went to summer school, like I went to a debate summer camp at Yale um, when I was after my junior year of high school and I was I was president of the debate team and vice president of the theater club so I was like a super nerd and um, I was at this camp and 
we, in our, our dorm room, I, my roommate was this Indian American girl, um, and, my best fr and my best friend who was our hallmate was Romanian, an immigrant. She had immigrated a few years earlier. And uh, so the three of us were this like posse, and we had talked about how in our rooms at home, we each had an American flag, but we didn't have one there. And so we're like, oh, we should make one. So we stapled together a whole bunches of pieces of paper, like, so they were, like, large. And then we drew with marker a f an American flag. And it was super hideous. Anyways, but we posted that in our dorm room. And I just, when I was writing this book, I was thinking back at that moment of, like, how interesting it was that an Indian-American, Iranian-American, and a Romanian immigrant went to, th to such lengths to have an American flag in their dorm room. Um, and it, and I just think, and it, but it didn't strike, it didn't strike me as odd considering all the other, you know, immigrants that I know, first-generation people that I know, we're all sort of, like, absurdly American. You know, we're all sort of embarrassingly, like, really dorkily American um, in a, like, oh, my God, what are you doing on July 4th? Like, I have my, you know, American flag T-shirt on. Like, it's, like, really, um, you know, we hew very strongly to that kind of patriotic edge. And... Um, and so, and I think it's because our parents came to this country, because um, some of them came from war-torn situations, some of them came from whatever religious oppression, and and suddenly they had this freedom, and suddenly they have these things and the ability to to uh, earn money and 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 a better life. And I think that you know, my parents were always like. You know, if you were in Iran, you wouldn't be able to do X, Y, or, you know, if you were in Iran, you wouldn't be able to go, you know, to your, to do a mime show, because I did mime. Um, and well, That's one of the good things about Iran. Miming is totally banned. It is, like, it's banned um, in the Islamic Republic. Uh, but, um, I, but, you know, like, they were always telling me, you know, pointing out stuff that I wouldn't be able to do if I was in Iran, and, you know, and I, and I think a lot of immigrants' parents do that. Like, you know, are you kidding? Like, you get Halloween. Like, shut up. You're <laughs> this like, you're, you won the lottery. You're in America. Um, and, and I think for me personally, every time I went back to Iran, I, you know, and I was, we were the only family that came out. So I have many, many aunts and uncles and cousins, just so many. And so I, I would compare myself to these dozens of family members and I did have everything and they had nothing and they were poor and they were struggling and they're still struggling under a very oppressive regime that you know and, and they can't get ahead and they can't get out and they don't know and and then and and a lot of them are going to die that way and so I think that's a very very gives you a very very strong appreciation for America in a way that you know, when, you know, when you're a white people, um, you might, you might not, you might take it for granted. It's interesting because I really think that, and I'm not, I'm speculating, but I agree. I think that the fact that, you know, my father's immigrant, my grandparents were, we appreciate so much of the opportunities in this country that other people take for granted. Maybe they don't. Maybe they've been here for 10 generations and they, they're like, wow, this is a great opportunity here. But they, it's unlikely they do because they don't know anything different. Like when I've gone to the Middle East, I'm like, 
But I live in New York City. I'm like, I got to get back to New York City. I so mean, and not, and you know, not to draw too fine a point, or not, there are plenty of immigrants who are, you know, assholes. I'm sure, um, <laughs> <laughs> who are like, oh, I can't log onto my Instagram account or whatever thing that's like, tr- you know, traumatizing them that day. But, but I think on a larger, like, ideological level, I, those things I think definitely play into how we we are. I mean, um, one of the things that's, that's such a oxymoron in a way is that as a black American going living in the Middle East and the Far East and um, Southeast Asia that when it, you're an American so you get a different sense of treatment as soon as I cross over the border and get in my passport stamp and I'm in here then it's okay hands behind your back you know that kind of thing so it's, it's such a drastic difference that's there that people outside of America see being American as being the epitome of everything but yet they rarely get the real information. I think no, because of the inter- internet now, they get better information. But prior, they've never thought of people, POCs having difficulties in America. So it's another thing that now that they see it, they, it's a very different framework in terms of how we do that. But it's really important that, as you say, you know, make life white people laugh, huh? <laughs> that this part of the process, that this is what is really the, the framework we're working with. But being Muslim also adds to that, sure. another layer. No, there are challenges, and both of you deal with haters, and there's no doubt about it. In, you know, a little bit inside our community, but outside. Again, you have a whole chapter that breaking down the anatomy of haters, from the voicemail hater, the drive-by hater, the email hater. Like, which is your favorite and why? <laughs> okay, well, I, well, I have a couple of favorites. I mean, my, one of my favorites is the drive-by hater, um, and I think we've all experienced this where... You're, you know, uh, where they're at a stoplight, um, they wait for the light to turn green, and as they drive off, they yell out of their car, like, get out, go back to your own country, or whatever horrible thing they're yelling. Um, and, you know, and we had a moment of this in the Muslims Are Coming, available on iTunes, and it, uh, you know, <laughs> where we were standing in front of a Mormon temple, in, in the, the, the Mormon temple in Salt Lake City, um, and uh, holding up a sign that said, hug a Muslim, um, and then, uh, like, as, like, probably a hun- over 100 Mormons waited in line to hug these two dirty They bastards. were really nice. Um, and, and they were so, lo- I mean, these were the warmest, I mean, these people, it was like a master class in hugging, the Mormons, they were okay? Mm-hmm. And, we think it was a recruitment plot. And we're so we're sure. doing they this, were, like, yeah. <laughs> Mitt Romney hugged us three times. Mitt Mitt Romney kept coming back into the line. Um, (laughs) I'm like, you're Mitt Romney. Stop hugging me. (laughs) I'm not going to vote for you. It doesn't matter. Um, (laughs) But um, so so that kept... And as we're doing this thing that was like really bringing tears to our eyes, like it was so touching... Um, someone yelled out of their, was at the stoplight, waited for the light to turn green, yelled out of the car, go back to your own country. And like, anyways, I'm from California. But um, <laughs> it was, I w- you know, but it was just one of those moments of like, we're hugging. What is the problem? Like, how could you even find a piece of rage over <laughs> hugging? Like, it's such a lovely um, act. And so they're one of my, and, and the, the, the funny thing is, too, about the drive-by hater in its current formation is that that back in the day they used to get out of your their cars and then hate you to your face, you know, and they just don't make them like they used to, you know what I mean? <laughs> Which is just like another sign of the decline in America. But um, 
But my my all-time favorite hate category is uh, the swing hater. And swing haters are sister to the swing voter. Um, they're like, you know, uh, they, they go from hating to not hating. They're really ideologically slutty. Um, and they do it because they don't have enough information, right? And so I think it's, uh, it's our goal um, to convert those swing haters because they're the ones, you know, that can be won over if they're given the right tools. And Imam Abdullah, just so people get a sense of the challenges, because being an openly gay imam and identifying as that poses certain challenges above being Muslim, above being African-American, frankly. And when I posted on my Facebook wall several, you've been on my radio show numerous times, when I posted all, America's openly gay imam, I've had friends who I thought were pretty progressive Muslims email me going, Either some saying, like, uh, you shouldn't have a gay person on your show. That was really an exception. Those were Muslims not in the country. The mm -hmm. ones in the country were like, I don't care he's gay. I don't care at all. But he shouldn't be identifying as an imam. What do you say to those people? Because you're helping Muslims in the LGBT community who are in need of help. You're doing beautiful work. And that was the argument I, uh, argument I make back to them. And some of them would be moved a little bit to understand. They go, well, you're right. There are people in our community who are in need, and they are gay. And who better than someone like you? But they'd rather just that you would just live your life in the closet, frankly. That's the sense I get. What do you do? How do you challenge that? Well, with any group, um, years ago when I was in the black gay movement, that blacks would be like, well, it's okay that you're gay, but just don't talk about it. And so it's the same, same right. thinking, the same line of thinking, because they feel a sense of embarrassment, uh, sometimes because people act so silly and stupid. And then other times, then when that they actually recognize it. Well, I do have a cousin. We don't talk about it. <laughs> oh, there's uncle so and so, or there's aunt so and so. So it's one, those types of things. But one of the issues that I find in the Muslim community is that when I do have an opportunity to have discussions with people, I emphasize that there are people out here who are requiring services. They're believers in the faith, and they need to have certain types of services. And from that very beginning 15 years ago, it was pretty much LGBT, but since that time, I've had a large number of interfaith uh, marriages that people have come to me. We're talking opposite sex people have come to get married. You know, and, and a regular imam would not do it for them, but yet I'm willing to open up and do that for them. But I have high standards. This is what people don't understand. I have some really strict standards as to what I'll do when I do it. So one of the things that's been really important, and this is the other side of it, you know, the other side of the coin, is that in the gay community, for years, I never met a gay Muslim. And now, more and more out there, right. but that was some, one of the problems. So even here, when I, years ago, if I walked down near Peace Street, which is one of the gay areas here, uh, I didn't, sometimes I didn't know why I was not being liked, so to speak, because, you know, they'll have a, doing pride, they have a religious service, mm -hmm. and I participate in that. So I'm not certain that they didn't like because I was Muslim. They didn't like because I'm a black male. You know, those kinds of things. And so I just say, well, if they're going to hate, they're going to hate anyway. But I got work to do. Excuse me, I'm moving on. <laughs> that type of thing. But and, one, and just to clarify, it's not part of the book or anything. But to clarify one thing, because we have a great audience here. People, I hear this all the time. Oh, look, ISIS says they're going to kill gay people. That's part of your religion. Can you answer quickly, is that in the Quran? Is that part of our faith, killing gay people? No, it isn't. It's not. What it is, is it's a political move on their part in order to make certain that they validate themselves. Um, Dr. Abu Fadl did a book on authority and authoritarian, saying that the Quran is authority. They read it for themselves, and they become the authoritarian to do what they decide is important. Uh, so, that, so that's what they do. I actually wrote about something ISIS did in the list of barbarity, but idiocy as well. They ban, I'm not making this up. They ban, ISIS banned people from wearing skinny jeans in the land they control. And that's not for women. They force women to cover up. 
It was for other men, because some ISIS guys were getting distracted by other guys wearing skinny jeans. Mm -hmm. They're like, look, I want to fight the Holy War, but Bassam is beautiful. I cannot look at <laughs> You must cover him up. I cannot watch this. I'm not kidding. They literally did that to ban men, because the guys in ISIS were having little feelings that were a little uncomfortable to them at the time. So, you know, we've joked about, about Sharia law, but Islamic law is never coming to America, even if we wanted to. We're 1% of the country. We don't want Islamic law. But there are places in this country where people are pushing Christian Sharia law, not far from here. North Carolina, Mississippi, mm -hmm. Oklahoma just tried to make it a felony to have an abortion, even in the case of rape, but the governor didn't sign it, thankfully. But Mississippi, North Carolina, with allowing to be discrimination against gay people. I've had you on my radio show to talk about that. Yes. How, do, how do we make, it's so funny that the same people pushing this Christian Sharia law are the ones accusing us of wanting Islamic Sharia law, which we don't want at all, right. but they do. How do we counter that stuff? Because it's such a battle that I'm dealing with all the time. Well, I'm not certain if we're going to be able to battle it from a religious perspective because right. people are going to believe what they want to believe. But when we look at the aftermath, we look at the issues of the secular laws and how that in enforces and also influences everybody, I think that's where it's going to be a, we're not going to go beyond this because I've faced this before. People of color uh, throughout, they face this issue of non-voting, blah, 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 those issues, home um, housing discrimination, those things, and they know that secular law is there for protection. Mm -hmm. So I think this is one of the reasons they've had such a major pushback in terms of that, but then there's also the hidden things that was in the North Carolina law, like the way in which they, they stopped people from being able to file discrimination suits yeah. at state level, and things like that. Oh. So to make them, keep them economically poor has been part of the process, was the undercurrent, why they use the, the trans flag thing as being the thing, look at all of this, but under here we're gonna do all this. So Nagin, by the way, like, do you think, growing up in retrospect, you look back, do you think it was challenging being a young Muslim woman as opposed to today's world? Do you think today's climate would be more challenging? Oh, that was, I don't know. That's a hard question because, you know, I was a baby during the Iran hostage crisis and my brother was in middle school. And so he had it really rough and we were living in the sticks of Virginia and it was like really, uh, he, you know, he would get beaten up and but whatever just for being Iranian. So during the hostage crisis, I think it was really, and for those first kind of few years of the 80s, it was really, it was really tough for Iranians. And, my, and part of the reason my parents left and then I ended up growing up in Palm Springs is because um, Virginia was such an unwelcoming place for them. Um, it was that bad they actually moved? It was... Yeah, it was really bad. I mean, in the, you know, the early this was the early '80s. It was during the Iran hostage crisis. Iran was in the news all the time, and everyone hated Iran. Um, and that it's gotten much better now. It, it, <laughs> People love Iran now. It's just going crazy. What a time! I wish I could come back Iranian. Is that even possible? I can be reincarnated. No, oh, it, then it's I think we're not. It's, by the time I was like aware of things, like you know. Uh, we started enriching uranium or maybe enriching uranium. We were like five minutes from enriching uranium. We're like, oh, my God, in two weeks, they'll enrich uranium. Uh, so like, so that's kind of the, what I grew up with is like the axis of evil stuff and the uranium enrichment constantly. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I don't even, what was your question? I don't know. <laughs> just, just fill in time to the Q&A. That's all. <laughs> Did you ever do, this is a question I've been asked a lot. You've been asked it too. But in recent times, have you been contacted by anyone moved by your comedy or about your work, and said, you know what, it really has made a difference. That's what we get all the time, like, oh, you're telling jokes is funny. Has anyone changed their mind? And it's hard because you can't quantify it, but every now and then you get a nice email from someone. 
Well, it's funny too because people ask a question like, you know, we waged we we the two of us sued the um, MTA, which is like the New York City subway system, over the right to put up uh, funny Muslim posters. Um, and you know, and we won. And we won. Uh, by <laughs> the, the way, court. for, for uh, anyone else in court. here, sue a major state agency and win. No, put up, oh, okay. put up funny we posters. Did. We did. Um, and uh, so, so we 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 did this lawsuit, and I think around that time, you know, people kept and this was about 144 posters going up in 140 subway stations in New York City. Um, this was not about uh, changing. You know, this was not going to change anyone's life really um, and so people were but people were like why are you going through all of this you know why are you doing this do you think a poster let me and give you let me give you a couple of examples of what those posters said one of them said for example facts about Muslims fact Muslims invented the concept of a hospital fact grown-up Muslims can do more push-ups than baby Muslims fact <laughs> Muslims invented Justin Timberlake um, and then another favorite was uh, the ugly truth about Muslims they have great frittata recipes <laughs> So this is um, the kind of like comedy that was on display in these posters, uh, and and you know when people asked why you know why are you going through all of this? Do you think a poster is going to change anything? And my answer to that is like, no, I'm not crazy and delusional. I, I don't think. No. <laughs> Sorry, Dean. One poster is not going to change anything. But and but here's the ridiculous and rather cheesy way I view things, which is that you know we'll put. We ended up getting those posters up, and in my mind, there was like a dude who looked at a poster and had a giggle, and then, and then another person looked at another one and chuckled, and then if you add up all those chuckles, and I'm talking millions, and once you get to the million mark of chuckles, that amounts to some kind of cultural shift, and that matters, you know. But ha but but removing the opportunity to have any chuckles would not, you know, you don't get anything done. So no, I don't think one po you know, no, one poster changes the world. No, I don't think the Muslims are coming, you know, radically shifted people's views. But I do think that there that is an incremental shift, um, and and I and I. Do I do. I get emails. I get the strangest emails, like that you would never. I get it. I, I remember one of the first emails I got was from a 16-year-old Filipino American girl in Iowa, who saw the Muslims are coming and felt like connected to me and felt like we were telling her story. Um, and I'm not Filipino, you know, uh, but she felt that connection. I, I got an uh, an email from a 45-year-old white dude. Um, in Michigan, who was a, a, a part of the armed services and had spent some time in um, in Afghanistan and uh, in the early part of the war or something, and anyway, and he he talked about um, you know how he really hated Muslims when he went into his service, and then kind of started to question it after he came back and question it more, question it more, and then saw our movie at just the right time to kind of get him over the hurdle. And those are... Now he's in a mom. <laughs> <laughs> he's running. No, he's not. But, yeah, so I feel like, you know, those things happen, and it's really rewarding. True. Any little thing can do it. You move, to paraphrase something by Robert Kennedy, I always like, he said, few of us can actually write the, his, change the world ourselves. I'm paraphrasing slightly. But all of us together, collectively, can write the story of our generation. And everyone, even if you just retweet 
something that is about social justice. You're making a difference. If you tell your friends, if you correct someone who says something bigoted, you're making a difference in the arc of the universe and how things move out there. So, so Nagin and the Imam are very happy here. We'll do some Q&A. Anyone has questions? And it's judgment-free. Like, we're at Aspen Institute. You guys are educated, smart people. But even if you have a question oh. about a Muslim, which I do my radio show every week, it's judgment-free because we all believe in having honest conversations. The only way to cut through misconceptions or stereotypes, or just a comment about comedy, about the book, if you, or if you saw our movie, or anything about joining Islam. We're here for that. No, we're not. <laughs> it's not a recruitment drive. But you get a free book if you join... <laughs> Nagin, no, I didn't tell her. That's, that was my thing. So, no, you don't get the book. So, anyone have a question or answer or comment? Yes, way back there, sir. And, and actually, that, that, that uh, comment was, was meant about, um, was the start of a comment about being PC in a crowd. Here in Washington, we have the Unity Walk where people of all different faiths come together for 9-11. And the thought of, of, of having a comedy aspect of that I wonder how that would go over and how, how um, that would, goes with, um, you know, just the thought of, of PC. That's my question, and so I, I wanted to learn about the PC scold you for saying humble. No, I mean, <laughs> we live in a world where there's a lot of instant outrage over certain things. Yeah. And, you know, comedy can play a role in bringing people together if people go in with the, the right sensibility. The idea that there's going to be some things in the comedy that someone might get offended, but if someone's not intentionally demonizing... We have to have some latitude with comedy, or even in conversations today, not to get into it, but the rise of Trump is tied somehow to this world of stifling discussions, and we didn't know beneath the surface what lurked, and now we're getting a sense of what lurks beneath the surface. So I think we have to have honest conversations, but my whole test has always been, if someone's intentionally, intentionally demonizing, they deserve everything they get, every kind of pushback. They're being playful, and it wasn't hateful, and we are adults, we know the difference, we have to have some latitude, at least as comedians, I'm always supporting and defending comedians, unless they're being a bigot on purpose, they deserve the hate. But. I feel really exhausted by the climate that we're in because, uh, you know, so I have this joke that, um, that I used to do where I would say, uh, you know, my mom, um, she, you know, is a touch, like, is a touch racist. Um, she would tell me, she would say, like, for example, she'd call me up and tell me about our new accountant. She was, she'd be like, Negin, he is Indian, but that is okay because with money, he is like a Jew. And so, <laughs> sort of like double insult compliment. I don't know what that is. But anyway, and I remember doing that bit, like, um, I can't, I think I was in Minneapolis and, and someone came up to me, um, afterwards and they were like, you know, like, that's really anti-Semitic. And I was like, wait, me? I'm anti-Semitic? You know, and they're like, yeah, I was really offended. And I was like, wait, but did you not? I mean, I'm making a commentary on the thing that she, and that, oh, you know, and so there's some people that are just never going to, like, understand, like, they're tone deaf to humor, um, and then, and that's really frustrating, uh, but also, I mean, um, I think, you know, one of the most brave things that I've encountered is when we have traveled um, in the South and people ask us questions, you know, like we had people ask us, asking us questions like, what do you think of 9-11? Or, you know, why don't Muslims denounce terrorism? Now, if we were, if we wanted to get offended by that, it'd be easy. What do you think of 9-11 is a very offensive question generally. But 
I think it was really brave to ask it because it's a, it's a question that a lot of people have. Like, what, do, what does a Muslim think of 9-11? And they're too afraid to ask. So you really have to create an environment in which they feel like it's okay to ask any question you might have because all of the, the you know, the rhetoric that has been dished to some, to some parts of the United States is from Fox News and talk radio, and that's all they hear. So why wouldn't they have that question? It's a legitimate question for them. And I would hate for us to get so overly sensitive in this country that we can't even hear, because it doesn't help me for that person to sugarcoat what they think. I need to hear exactly what they think and know exactly what we're working with, you know? Um, and so I think that's been, you know, the, the kind of PC sensitivity policing has been a little bit of a disservice to that. I'd just like to add that I think one of the things that happens is that there's a certain level of expectation that people have. And so when they talk to you, quite often you have to sort of take a few seconds to let the question go through to see now, are you responding from an emotional trigger or are you really going to answer their question in a way that they can understand it from their perspective. And I think quite often when you take that few seconds to do so, in the end you see the head nodding, you see the smile, those kinds of things. So you know you're connecting with them on the level, even though it's just on that small piece, they still see the humanness between that's connecting us. And I think that's one of the most important aspects that although we don't like certain types of human beings, you know, but we can still see the humanness in them. And I think that's when you've made that connection. If you keep talking, there's going to be something else that's going to connect to something else. And when you leave the conversation, quite often you leave as people who've gotten some answers taken care of, and now you're willing to go out and talk to other people about things without the same sense of absence or distance. Hi, Mac O'Dell. Just two questions. One, did uh, John Stewart change the world? And the second question is, <laughs> Okay, what about Charlie Hedbo and the Danish cartoonists who were trying to make humor that didn't, uh, that caused a lot of, uh, well, you know what happened. I think John Stewart had an impact on the world. That's what, he was in our documentary, The Muslims Are Coming. He made time to be in it. I think, I think comedians at their best, the famous ones, can raise awareness about issues and show you a different side to it. And if it goes well, inform you and entertain you at the same time. That's the highest form of comedy in my mind, political comedies. Informing, entertaining, you learn something. Uh, Charlie Hebdo and the Danish cartoon. The Danish cartoonist, I know what happened to him. I don't know all the facts that led up to that. But Charlie Hebdo, I'm much more familiar with. Um, there's nothing, and maybe we have the imam speak to that as well. There's nothing in our faith that says you kill someone for drawing the Prophet Muhammad. That's not part of our faith. That should not be part of our faith. Nagina and myself have defended the drawings of any cartoons of Prophet Muhammad. Do whatever you want. Prophet Muhammad doesn't need your defense. I mean, that's the reality. That's the world we live in. Um, but there are going to be people who for their own agenda, either they believe it religiously or have a political motivation, and they're going to kill someone in a spectacle to make a political point, which to me was more Charlie Hebdo, because I'm more familiar with that. I mean, these guys had printed the cartoon years ago, and all of a sudden Al-Qaeda is going to go kill these guys, because the reality was ISIS was getting a lot of press, and Al-Qaeda wanted some more press. So that plays a role into it. But maybe have the imam speak to the idea of the, the cartoons and any kind of religious prohibition, actually calling for death of someone for joining the Prophet Muhammad. Well, responding to that is that throughout Islamic history, and I always take people back to the history, there has been artwork. There's been work, I'd, I'd probably say once Islam entered in, into Persia, 
since that time, there have always been depictions of who the prophet was. Usually you'll see certain types of things like a halo around the head or the fire over the face or something. There are depictions. Not all of them give facial features, but there have been pictorial depictions. And so for them to make that statement shows the lack of knowledge they have of their own faith. So it always turns into the political usage of it there. But I'm a lover of political cartoons. Tom Tolles is one of my favorite <laughs> cartoonists, and I love his, his, you know, his thing in Mike... Um, down in the Atlantic, for the Atlantic, Mike Kolovich, I think. But I mean, these are political cartoonists who just do wonderful jobs. And I think once we start looking at the cartoons to bring us back to our human nature, how we're interconnected, I think we can see some of those things. But as Dean said, it really was done from a political perspective that they wanted to have something to be angry about and then to take it out on the a society to show how big and bad that they are. We're the big bad wolf. I have a question for Imam Abdullah. Recalling as I do that Alexander the Great legendarily got on his knees and cried because he had no worlds left to conquer, I wonder as a gay black Muslim, you ever despair at running out of discriminated groups to belong to? <laughs> That's a great question. No. <laughs> uh, one of the things I find so unique is that, and this is what I was talking about earlier about the level of expectation. There have been times when I, you know, I, I went to Georgetown and did a, um, my undergrad in Chinese and Arabic language and literatures. And so when I go places, I walk in and there's this black guy and all of a sudden I'm speaking Mandarin to all the people there and not only the, man, the Chinese are shocked, but the other people are shocked as well. And I've been in some places where the Chinese parents are talking to the son or the daughter saying like, look, this foreign guy, he, wanted, he speaks better than you do. Why haven't you done such and such? So... <laughs> I can't get away. <laughs> but no, actually, one of the things I find really uh, important is that once I'm able to show that I have things more than just watching Beyonce, okay, or being able to do other types of things, then it brings us, blends us together. It shows that we have some sense of connectedness. And I've all, I'm a kid of the, of the civil rights movement, and so the idea is that, like uh, Steven Weinberg, Weinberg, I think, says that, we have to be able to get people to start talking and doing things, because if we get the folks not doing anything, the, what's happening with Donald Trump is going to really hurt this country. It's going to hurt what we believe in and hurt how we interact with each other. And I don't think we need to go back to the 40s when there were race riots and things of this nature. I'm, just, I'm not super afraid of that, but I can see that it has that potential. And I just think that if we start thinking more clearly about these things and that our differences doesn't mean it's bad. And once we can accept that fact, difference has a goodness to it, then I think we're going to wind up making a, a major leap forward for a lot of people. This is more of a, a, a comment than a question. Sure. But I, you, know, you mentioned the PC police and all this is going on, and I think what's most important is that you have an understanding and be able to straddle two different worlds. And I think, Nagin, you were so great because you talked about the, the making of the American flag at camp, but you referred to Ahmadinejad as our president when you were talking. So I think the fact that you can talk about both of those, both of those worlds is a way that people who aren't a part of both worlds can hear more and really learn more from the type of things that you're saying, whether it's comedy or anything else. I think, uh, well, thank you for saying that. Um, and one of the things that, um, you know, p people say to me um, whenever, 
you know, I perform around the country and also said um, while we were making The Muslims Are Coming is, you know, why do you have to call yourself Iranian-American? Why can't you call yourself American-American? And I think, you know, and, and I remember in one particular instance, the guy that was talking to me was like, you know, 10th generation Dutch-American or something like that. And, um, and he is so far removed from what his Dutch roots are that it doesn't, you know, the the urgency with which I say Iranian American, like the sincerity uh, that uh, that uh, with which I identify that way, doesn't ring true for him because it's he's so far removed, and uh, and I think you know I you know and I said to him like I grew up in in the United States and I love. Um, you know, like I love this country, but I also for 18 years lived with my parents. We spoke not one, but two other languages, neither of which were English at home. And we, you know, and I ate different foods and I had a different religion and everything at home was different. And you're asking me to just wholesale erase that. That's, you know, that's like asking someone who's a Patriots fan to stop being a Patriots fan because they moved out of Boston. Like, why? Why? Mm -hmm. You know, go ahead, stay a Patriots fan. I get it. And so I think um, that's the the thing that we kind of uh, that we we kind of have to remind people is like there's that that you know these people have that linkage and it hasn't been erased for them yet. Um, so hopefully you can be okay with that. You're talking about Americans, but you're and you were sort of Indian. I was confused because I think of that as American Indian. Then I realized you meant East Indian. But how do you feel that uh, about the country? This is we're taking it. We took it from the from Native Americans. I talk about that in in in, in my book, and I also talk about um, how you know when you're um, a minority, like any fight is your fight, you know, so I feel um, just as passionately for, uh, you know, for what has happened to the Native Americans um, as I do for what has happened to, uh, to black Americans um, and, and fighting for, so we're all, it's all multiple sides of the same coin, so you're absolutely right, and that should, you know, definitely be a larger part of the conversation. Um, the sad, sad reality is that the numbers have dwindled so much that it's uh, it's hard to keep them a, a stronger part of the conversation. I think on the national scale, and so um, we have to do like a better job at that. We want to thank you very much. The Aspen Institute wants to thank you very much. We want to thank them for inviting us. How about one more round of applause for Nagin Prasad and Imam Abdullah? Thank you. Nagin Farsad and Dean Obidallah are comedians who produced the documentary, The Muslims Are Coming. Farsad recently authored the book, How to Make White People Laugh. You also heard from Imam Dayi Abdullah, president and founder of the Mecca Institute. He's one of the world's only openly gay imams. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcasting service. Discover more about the Aspen Institute at aspeninstitute.org. Follow the Institute year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Institute. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and myself and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.